Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, April 3rd. Derek Van Riper here with Chris Welsh, Eno Saris on vacation, enjoying some much-deserved time off. It sounded like he didn't necessarily love being on the pod every single day while I was gone. And I think you guys did an awesome job while I was out. I tried to listen to as many shows as I could at very random hours of the day. So I have some fragments of what happened while I was <laughs> gone. But one of the things I could tell was that Eno was getting a little burnout from the, the heavier schedule while I was gone. Yeah, I, it was fun talking with Eno about it too because it would be like, yeah, yeah, we're going to have Derek back. And then Eno would just have this like, Oh, thank God. And then I was like, I don't think it was that bad. Was I? And then he was like, no, 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 it's just hosting. And yeah, I mean, five days a week is pretty tough, especially with everything that, you know, is going on with Eno and all the great articles. I mean, I felt like, you know, over even the last couple of weeks, uh, which we dearly missed you, by the way, but like him and I would just go on with things probably as you two would go. And then you would have like two or three article ideas that would pop out of it. Like me and Eno kind of ended up doing that where you could hear the articles starting to roll and be created. But yeah, he deserves it. Have some sandwiches, have some beers and uh, share it with all of us. I think he had a really nice meetup in New York as well on Friday. It looked like from the pictures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That looked great. Had some nice sandwich pictures over the weekend from, you know, I think he did something like five, five sandwiches, 10 beers in three days or something. I might have the numbers a little wrong. The, The beer number seems a tad low. I was about to say, mm, DVR, the beer number might be a little bit higher. Maybe I, I that was on Friday. Alone. For writing, for writing purposes, I think it was 10. But I think for enjoyment purposes, it may have been slightly more than 10. Slightly. But on this episode, we're going to dig into some important news and notes coming out of the weekend. We had some players debuting, making big league debuts. We had team debuts. We saw some injuries. Uh, just some observations, really, because this is a, a new season with some new rules. And we're already seeing the impact of of those changes uh, through the first time through the rotation for teams, which is pretty amazing. We actually have some stats about the things that have changed from the early part of last year to the early part of this season, so we'll get into those. We're also going to do a little bit of a weekend fab review. Take a look back at what people did over the weekend in free agency with their fantasy teams because it gives us a better sense of how to manage fab going forward. Of course, with the new shows we put in this feed this year, we've got the waiver show on Friday. This is sort of a, a connected segment to that where if you want to learn how to fish, you got to see how other people fish. Like That's just part of the process. Because I think one thing people say when they start playing in a league with Fab for the first time is, this is really weird and difficult, and it's not like anything else I've ever done before. And I agree. I think it, it takes a couple seasons sometimes to really get used to that process. So we're going to try and help people speed that up. I think I'm still getting used to it. Uh, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time because you also have two different elements you have, which is going to dominate the NFBC based element is going to dominate the conversation, which is a thousand dollars. And you see guys bidding $143 on this guy and that, but then you also have a lot more basic leagues, which are going to just run a hundred, you know? So then that's why I think guys like you and I, I try to do at least the most as possible is I try to speak in percentage terms. That's the best way I can do it and rounding it up instead of you know, this dollar amount or anything like that, because they just don't translate. And if you've never done it before, it's eye opening. If you used a hundred dollars, even though it's still basic math that you can figure out, it's still jarring when you're trying to get that little edge over, you know, it's like, could this guy going to go for a hundred, you know, 15%? Do I go one? 55 156 it's a it's a it's a game where boy can you feel good when you beat a guy by two or three dollars but it is heartbreaking when you're decimated by uh you know a two dollar bid when you went really hard on a player yeah and i think what's really tough about it is that you could you could use an algorithm and probably come up with more accurate bids that way but there is some element of it that's feel it's knowing your league knowing the tendencies of the people in the room understanding 
how aggressive a particular group of players is with certain categories. When we talk about this, you're going to see uh, saves, of course, sources of saves and steals always come at a premium if you're in an NFBC league. If you're in a non-NFBC league, those premiums might not be quite as steep. So a lot to get to today. And I figure we start with some debuts because we saw Kodai Singa make his actual Mets debut. And if I remember correctly, there were people getting eyes on him back during first pitch Florida. That was his spring yeah. debut with the Mets. And this was a pretty good debut. 10 whiffs, 9 on the fork ball. Max Velo, 99.9 miles per hour. He also threw 18 sweepers and 12 cutters in the outing. So four pitches, had him working. Pretty easy matchup for him going up against the Marlins. But how are you feeling seeing a little more of Singa now this spring and now seeing a start that actually counted over the weekend? Yeah, actually, by the way, he uh, he cashed a, uh, a nice little bet for me, too, because his strikeout prop was five and a half. The problem, though, is he was really low strikeouts early on. So I was kind of like tuned into this game, you know, with a couple of guys. I had him paired. What a weird pairing. Check this out. I had a three pairing uh, DVR of Kodai Senga, Graham Ashcraft and Joe Ryan. And I am hitting that. It was a K prop across the board. Uh, so I was paying attention to it. Low Ks to start. And it's a little bit wild. Um I think he really had to kind of find himself. If I remember correctly, maybe you just said this, I think all whiffs and strikeouts came off of that ghost fork. Yeah, all but one, yeah. All but one. And the fastball was just kind of like wavering across the board, and, and he was struggling with early command on it. It'll be interesting to see like where that goes, but I think the most promising thing was you know just how he was able to recover from it because like i said if you watch the whole start i think early on it didn't look great numbers weren't going well the fastball wasn't going but you know the fork ball he just had absolute presence of throwing it almost 30 percent of the time and the fastball usage being so low to go from fork ball to sweeper to four seam all almost in the same pairing with that type of movement makes him devastating the only thing i'm concerned about the only thing i'm concerned about is where this goes into the future because if all the damage is done off the fork ball, I've cited this a lot of times before, so apologies, but like, you know, Casey Mize, you know, Casey Mize was renowned for that splitter that he had. Oh, it's the best ever, blah, 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 you know, best in the minor leagues. And then just guys just stopped swinging at it. And then you had to go on the other stuff. Kodasenga stuff is way better. You know, sweeper looks good, fastball's good, and stuff like that. But uh, I'm going to be very curious once the league has kind of a vision. You know, the shape of that fork ball and he can't go on it. What's that going to look like for strikeouts and how the league is going to adjust him overall? But that's me being, I, I don't know, maybe a little wet blanket off of what was like a really good start. Yeah, you're not usually the wet blanket type, at least uh, in the past when I've talked to you. I've never got that impression from you. But no, it, it's important early in the season when you see something really good, just when you see something really bad, to not overreact. You want to act, yeah. you want to be responsive to what's happening because some of the things we see are going to be very impactful. And this is the time of year when you can end up making some really great pickups that people could be overlooking. I saw this tweet before we started recording. It's from Lance Brozdowski. Uh, he does a lot of work for the Marquee Sports Network with the Cubs play. And he had this breakdown of several pitchers who went over the weekend. I think these might have been all guys that actually pitched on, yeah, they pitched on Sunday, who have different pitches in their arsenal. And you mentioned a couple of them, I think, there. Joe Ryan and Graham Ashcraft were among the six that he wrote up. And I think the biggest takeaway I had, he's got Jeffrey Springs in there, and Springs was shooting up draft boards over the last few weeks and pitched really well in his debut uh, against the Tigers. But if you start to see names that you thought you'd figured out on lists like this, popping up with new pitches when you look at their StatCast page, you have to rewrite the book on them. 
And I think the guy that really jumped off the, the page when I looked at this tweet, Brad Keller. Lance has Brad Keller with two new breaking balls. Last year only had the slider. And this year he's got a sweeper, plus he's got a curveball. And the curveball is actually his new best pitch. And Brad Keller was always a guy that never really had a pitch that I liked. So now he's got something that actually works really well and a deeper arsenal. So instead of having this reaction now where I see you know Brad Keller and his upcoming matchups and I just go, ah, it's Brad Keller. It's got to be just an absolute layup. I'm going to stream him. I'm rethinking it. I'm tuning in the next time he pitches. I'm trying to do a little more homework before the next fab run, and I'm possibly changing my tune with him. I think if you're looking for indications of something that have changed in a meaningful way, the arsenal in games that count is a huge thing to look for in the early part of the season that can actually shift a player's value in a ton of directions. Yeah, I completely agree with that. We saw the same thing with one of like, I don't know, my favorite, you, just if we want to look like opening day in the first, you know, four games of, of all the players, we're kind of like hyper-focused on what happened, you know, Saturday and Sunday, but Pablo Lopez is the same way. Pablo Lopez implemented a sweeper, which he threw 22% of the time, and that thing was effective, and that looked like it completely changed. He also had an uptick in velo, but that new added sweeper has me excited, and that's, you know, the trend we've talked about a whole lot. You, you were, while you were out, I mean, Eno and I felt like we talked about it at every point, like every other pitcher took their, their slider and just cut it in half, and it was like, here's a gyro, and here is a sweeper. But the sweeper trend is out there and we're seeing some, you know, big positive turns. And those are things I agree with you. Those are things that I'm looking for. There are a couple pitchers out there early on that I thought had some good, just sneaky uptick performances. But like we're hyper focused on these big arsenal changes. And uh, I agree. Brad Keller is pretty interesting. A great tweet by Lance. I had read that earlier this morning. Uh, Graham Ashcraft was another person that jumped out. And Pablo Lopez is one of my favorites from the last couple of days because you had the two best things. You had a new pitch that was great and had really, really high uh, whiff rate on it. And also you had a velo uptick. And those are a couple of things that I'm looking for when you're trying not to like crazily overreact. It's stuff that gets you excited, though. Yeah, and I think it's also beyond pickups. It could also be something that leads you to make an early season trade because the value yes. shift might not be there in the mind of the person who has these pitchers rostered already. And perhaps because this they have an overperforming pitcher, they've got excess. They're willing to make a deal. So I think that's something to keep in mind too. That that's how I feel about Pablo Lopez specifically, because I felt like he's he's like a back end guy. Maybe he costs a tiny bit more, but giving you exacts on it, he his the uh, this new sweeper, which he didn't even have, I'm looking, I don't even think I realized this. He didn't even have a slider last year, but he had a cutter, which he essentially destroyed his cutter which last year had a 24% whiff rate. He threw it around 9% of the time, cutter variation of like a slider. And now he's got this sweeper, which he threw 22% of the time. So last year, he was only two pitches over 10% usage. This first start, four pitches over 10% usage. And that sweeper, which no one had seen, and was about four, about four miles an hour less than the uh, cutter had a 72.7% whiff rate on it. I mean, that's the stuff that I get kind of jacked up about. And I would love to kind of buy low on him right now in a trade. But I also think there were a lot of guys, you mentioned like Brad Keller. Uh, there's guys like hitters, Nolan Gorman and stuff that might just be free and might be cheap. And we're probably um, players that you were looking at in fab that you were picking up. But Pablo Lopez is one of those guys I'd be actually looking at trading for. This is probably a good time to remind everyone, too, that Eno's Stuff Plus model is available on Fangraphs. So you can look at this stuff right away and just see how impactful some of these changes are, how much the model actually likes the shape and movement of these new pitches. You know, with Keller, 
Uh, there were some location issues, so obviously that's something to be mindful of, but you still need usually about three starts before you can really start to buy fully into what the model is capturing. Um, encouraging to see guys like Graham Ashcraft, though, coming out right now, tied for third in Stuff Plus. Otani, Hunter Green, Jacob deGrom, Graham Ashcraft, based on the Stuff Plus model that Eno has. Can I ask you, how, so to what you just said, like how? so how would you approach that? Because I agree with you. Obviously, all of this is like sample size based. Like we need more before, and people overreact on both sides. But like, how are you personally balancing losing the track? Because if let's say Pablo Lopez, if Pablo Lopez or Brad Keller, whatever, if those guys were to be dominant over two more starts, their cost keeps rising. What's the thing that makes you pull the trigger early without seeing the really great sample size? For me, it's the combination of the new pitch and the velo increase. Those are two things, right? There's two ways. Yeah. If Pablo Lopez doesn't hold the velo, knowing that the arsenal is deeper, that makes him better. And if he holds both, it's a massive step forward for him. I think when it's a difference in, in just the pitches, I'm a little more of like a, hey, let's just see if these pitches are actually good and effective. Because now, now that teams have seen them, they're going to make adjustments, right? Are, are the guys going to tee off on this pitch now that they know it's part of the arsenal? Or is it actually going to be as effective as it was when maybe it surprised the first team that saw it because it was something that they did a good job uh, not really showing anybody over the course of the spring? So, yeah, it's it's tricky. But I think the more exciting the player who does something like this, the harder it is to still go get a deal done. I think Brad Keller is right in that sweet spot of really boring guy that no one likes that wouldn't wouldn't take much to pry Brad Keller loose in a deep league trade or possibly to scoop him up off the wire. I wouldn't even have to bid much to get him. You know, it's funny. We actually have like different levels. This is like the ladder effect of pitchers. You have like the bottom ring is like Brad Keller, a guy that you could probably go pick up off the wire now. And then you move up to Graham Ashcraft, you know, who maybe was owned, you know, being talked as the big three, maybe was owned at the very bottom, but still might be available. Then you got a guy like Pablo Lopez who was drafted, you know, low, who might be pushing up. And then you mentioned it before, like Jeffrey Springs. Jeffrey Springs' performance was absolutely dominant, you know, and the changeup was sick. And everybody kind of doing the like, oh, it's the Tigers and stuff. But that's another one of those guys that had massive, crazy big performances. But not to like turn it on to all these. We're talking about guys to acquire when take a thing like Jeffrey Springs. Is that a player that you think it's a peak? type of thing because I still think he's got top easy top 20 SP upside but he goes out has a phenomenal performance this weekend plays above expectations tied for strikeouts is that a guy that you're now out there pushing maybe in trades or do you think the the sample size isn't enough where people are going to pay what is deserved I think you have to be in a pretty sharp league for springs to be valued correctly so if you had him and wanted to max out yeah. you need to be in a league full of people that are totally into all the things that we're talking about I think he's more the kind of player you'd buy high on in a lot of leagues that our listeners play in, which is not to at all disparage those leagues, but I just think you you find different levels of competition. Springs has been buzzy in the high-stakes market throughout draft season. He was one yeah. of the pitchers whose ADP jumped the most once we get to those main events at the end of March. I think the other thing about Jeffrey Springs that's kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm curious if this is something that changes your, uh, your opinion of a player or your evaluation of a player. Springs is the kind of guy that because the Rays gave him a multi-year extension, they they wanted to lock in cost certainty with him. That to me was a little bit of an indicator that there was another level there. And we've seen, I mean, this this uh, the Brewers have a couple guys that've done this with Freddie Peralta got an extension really early. Uh, Aaron Ashby got an extension really early. I tend to fall for for players that 
get those kinds of deals from their teams because I think it's a signal that their models internally really think those guys have a high ceiling and they want to keep costs as low as possible. So I want to take advantage of that possible growth. I kind of think I see that across the board. I wouldn't even just say like a team like like the Rays or we, we always have that radar up where it's like the Rays trade a player. We're like, ooh, like if they're trading a player, this must really be a problem. Like we should really be worried about it. <laughs> or if they trade for a guy. But like I looked at the same thing, um, you know, shocker, I'm going to mention it, but like Corbin Carroll, like for a team like the Diamondbacks to lock up a player like at that point, I think it says a whole lot about the overall evaluation process. And, you know, how many times I don't know what the success rate is. It'd be interesting to see what's the success rate of these younger guys in their first couple of years, locking up these type of deals, getting to play and then performing. There's something deeper to it. Springs is different. Because Springs is like, <laughs> did you just write that? <laughs> I had that one ready. I'm going to go a full episode. By the way, anyone listening, it says we made it 16 minutes before Corbin Carroll came up. Um, I got to do an episode without doing it. But yeah. my point is, is like, you know, you've got, you've got these players that I think teams are more locked in and more um, cost savvy than ever before to try to throw around that type of money. But I think it does tell something, but Springs is different. He's older. Um, you know, he's been babied a little bit more. They have much more of a bigger sample size. And then you put it on top of like a really smart raised team. I 100% think you're on to the right idea. Like they know there's something way bigger in there. And we kind of saw it um, on the table. And another one of those guys that he implemented he didn't scratch a slider or this is also like what baseball savant is going to pick up, but he essentially didn't throw a sinker according to them, which he only actually did like only a few times last year, but he essentially scrapped the slider for this new sweeper and this new sweeper came in and was, you know, not dominant pitch, but it completely changed the, um, the velo look of what people were used to with him, where it was around 79 miles per hour. At least that was one of the, the tops on Jeffrey Springs. It just made, that was the average, a 79.6. So he had, who's not a dominant velo type of pitcher, he had a good 12, 13 mile an hour difference with being able to kind of hold that pitch back and keep batters on their back foot. Like he just looks phenomenal. He's a command guy that has big stuff that guys are swinging through because they think they can hit it to the moon and they can't. And I think the Rays see it and I think they see the 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 ability of what they're able to mold this guy into and he looks like a top 20 sp right now yeah that's that's the way he started off i mean an excellent spring excellent first start of the year for jeffrey springs and uh probably someone that's still a little bit overlooked in the more shallow leagues out there despite the recent success and he did it last year too the amazing thing too when you look back at his full professional track record at the big league level jeffrey springs threw more innings working as a starter really for the first time as a big leaguer last year than he did as sort of an up-and-down reliever in the previous four seasons combined. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of a big take on him. You know what? I'm curious about this. Who would, And this guy's going to be pitching today. Who would you rather have, George Springer or Jeffrey Springs this year moving forward? <laughs> George Springer. <laughs> George Springer with ease. You didn't even have to think about that. Yeah. I think George Springer is underrated. So if you got a trade offer... George Springer for your Jeffrey Springs. You pull the trigger right now. Yeah, assuming I had enough pitching to still get by, and yeah, I, I would. If, if the needs made sense, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, I'm saying, it's like a one for like maybe it's like a you know a a two piece trade. You see Springer, you see the upgrade of Kirby over Springs significantly. That you know maybe there's two position players involved. Because I'm just trying to get out there that like 
I think you've got to figure out what levels you might believe in a guy like this, because if you don't believe, and I would say this, if you don't believe he's a pitcher that is in the same territory as George Springer, then I think, I keep saying George Springer, I'm sorry, George Kirby. I think that is a signal to dangle uh, Jeffrey Springs out there, that you should look and see what the trade market looks like, because this is a great opportunity against a bad Detroit Tigers team that he did take advantage of. Like, he's not going to have 12 strikeouts every game. You know, maybe that equates to six or seven strikeouts versus a much better, like, an Astros team or something like that. But maybe if you're not a believer that he's in that territory, you should put him out there right now and take advantage of the early trade market. Just a, just a thought. Even though I'm a believer, just something to uh, chew on. Yeah. Uh, if it's George Kirby versus Jeffrey Springs, that's closer. I think I saw him. Did I say George Springer? The whole time. Yeah. So I, oh I thought, I thought you were making a spring pun. I was like, no, was I was trying to say thing? George Kirby. My brain DVR. George Kirby. Kirby. All right. So I'm Springer here. Okay. And I'm Kirby and Jeffrey Springs real close together. I think part okay. of it for me, uh, George Kirby throws a little harder, has that excellent command, also has a pretty pitcher friendly environment, but. If you said, I want I want Jeffrey Springs instead of George Kirby, I wouldn't talk you out of that. I think they're close enough in value and they became close enough in value at the end of draft season. You're not giving anything up. You're not you're not hurting yourself. You're just making a call based on what you see and, and what you believe at this point, which that is makes totally sense fine. why and that also makes sense why you're talking about the pitching depth on the trade. You're like, Yeah, if your pitcher could hold up, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like George Kirby is a pitcher. Like I kept saying George Springer. So yes. Okay, so you do have uh, Springs and Kirby in the same territory. So I yeah. think that's kind of Telling ish within arm's reach of each other, reasonable even trade if it's a one for one challenge trade. It okay. also it helps you if you were the one that if you wanted George Kirby and you had Springs helps you a lot if Kirby gets hit a little bit in that first start. Like you need you need that little that little something extra to entice the other side to actually make that deal. Let's get to a few more changes. Noah Syndergaard, which a lot was made of the velo not coming back this spring. I don't think anybody expected to come all the way back to his pre-Tommy John levels. I think the hope was if you were drafting Noah Syndergaard, if you were buying into the idea that the Dodgers could take this version of Thor and do something similar to what they did with the success they had with Tyler Anderson last season, it was getting at least some of the velocity back. So we saw it for a start, maxed out at 94.3 with the sinker, a very new slider that he's throwing a lot harder. The slider was up at like 90, so that's a big difference for him I think him it's closer well. to a cutter. I think it's actually yeah. a cutter, and it's not being designated that because it was a 5-mile-per-hour uptick, and that's way more cuttery than it is. Because also, I believe he had across-the-board downtick in velo off of last year. And just to add, like to your point, I think their expectations is because the Dodgers told us that they expect his velo to come back. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, he's a Dodger. They'll fix him. They're like, no, you're going to see an uptick in velo. And we did not. We actually saw a downtick, I believe, in velo across the board, except for the sl this slider, quote unquote, that was five mile an hour faster, which I think is just a cutter at that point. Because it also had a whole lot less, I want to say horizontal movement. It had a, it was way more cutterish. Yeah, so I guess the question I have for you is, if you were going to reproject Noah Syndergaard right now, which I think this is a fair time to do it. We had spring, we've had a regular season start. I know the models absorbed what happened last year with the K rate falling off, and he got punished. I mean, the bat had Noah Syndergaard projected for a 498 ERA and a 134 whip going into the mm. season. That seemed pretty high to me even before getting a chance to see what he was going to do with his new arsenal. Where are you at right now? And for context, last season, Noah Syndergaard had a 394 ERA at a 125 whip, 
for the Angels. It was 134 and two-thirds innings, only 95 Ks. He had a 16.8% strikeout rate. Did a good job with control, 5.5% walk rate. So what do you think we're going to see with the skills? Like where strikeout rate projection in terms of percentage? What do you think Noah Syndergaard has for the season? 27% was what he had in the first start of the year. But what do you think it looks like at the end of this season? Oh, man, this is such a tough battle because it's like the Dodgers. Um, I think the the low end is he's out of this rotation because they have too mm. many guys. They have too many good guys um, that are coming up. Bobby Miller, Gavin Stone. I just don't know how long they're going to mess around with it. The Diamondbacks were not scoring runs. Even the Diamondbacks, by the way, took two from the Dodgers, and I think they scored six total runs, which is silly. Um, I think the stolen base thing is <clears throat> on point again. That's going to be a problem that the Dodgers are not going to want to put up with. Will Smith is having some early problems, and if you watch uh, Corbin Carroll, um, now that we're 20-something minutes, Corbin Carroll stole second and third on two consecutive pitches without a throw, without a single throw he was able to do that. And I think that's going to kind of come back into focus. I think it puts pressure in. I don't like, and I'm saying all this that doesn't have to do with the arsenal. I don't think the Dodgers are actually going to be able to truly fix this. Maybe that that cutter was a new look that I think teams are going to kind of get back in on. But the only thing that had any effective whiffness was his changeup in this start. The velos were down. The saving grace is going to be the offense that's going to be there to support him. So I I think it's going to be repeaty outside of maybe a little bit lower ERA than last year with the potential that maybe he's not in this rotation if the struggles do come up. I mean, they're hitting. Colorado's hitting. This division's hitting is what I'm trying to say. The Padres are hitting. Um, if you get If he gets tagged a little bit, how much are they going to be able to hold off outside of injuries across the board? Are they going to be able to hold off Bobby Miller or Gavin Stone? I mean, Michael Grove is still, I think he's getting to start today. I mean, these young guys are coming. I don't have firm, firm trust in Noah Syndergaard. I mean, do you? Is that cutter enough for you to feel good that things have changed? It's enough for me to say that he's probably useful as a streamer more than half the time if we're talking about a a reasonably deep mixed league. I think if you're chasing Syndergaard in like a 10-team league, you're probably expecting a little too much. Like That's that's not a great fit. That's uh, I'd be a little I'd be a little more careful about the matchups I'd use him in there. But thinking a lot about those 15-team leagues where he was reasonably cheap, and I don't have him more than once across nine rosters. The same. I don't think I'm going out trying to make a lot of trades for him, but at the same time, I think the projections overcorrect. I think the K rate's going to be in the low 20, like 22%, 23% range. I think that's reasonable because the control's not bad. Maybe he's almost like a guy that's going to go through the lineup twice a lot of days in close games and then just turn it over to their bullpen. So depending on how efficient he is, you know, maybe maybe it's five and fly a lot of times, and and that's enough to get wins. If he's consistently doing the, I guess like the twenty twenty two Chris Archer thing, he's going to be a maddening player to have rostered because a big part of why you take the chance is to get those W's. And if he's going four and a third, four and two thirds, I realize he went six in his first start of the season. I just hope we're not setting expectations too high based on the depth of that first outing. Okay, let me ask you this, and this is again apologies for the homerism. This there's going to sound in this. Uh, Dre Jameson. Dre Jameson, Madison Bumgarner is uh, cooked and washed, and it's a bad look. And uh, I think the Diamondbacks have nicely used whatever fatigue excuse it is to send him back and will nicely put him on the IL as a favor while they figure out what to do. Dre Jameson came in in replacement, 66 pitches. He threw a slider. He did a Hunter Green 
over 50% usage on his slider, which was crazy. This is something uh, we don't necessarily see on you know, 51.5%. His slider had a 66% whiff rate. He threw a sinker and a four seam. So essentially two ish pitch guy, but a 50% whiff rate on his four seam and his slider. He looked great. He was commanding a 29% K percentage. I believe firmly that he is going to get the next start in replacement. I might be at that game, by the way. I'll be at opening day for the Diamondbacks. It'll be Dre Jamison in replacement. And if we see some of the same, it's going to be hard for him to take it off. So my question lines to where everyone knows, would you dump a guy like Noah Syndergaard in replacement of, you can replace the type of pitcher, by the way. It could be another young pitcher. that. But Dre Jamison seems to be the guy. I love the pitch mix change. Love the early Ks. He looked dominant. Would you dump a guy like Syndergaard knowing what the floor is for the upside of a guy like Dre Jamison who could take that rotation spot and really showed off in that um, almost 70-pitch relief performance. I think you could afford it if you don't have another stash already. But I think I'm looking at the schedule when I make a move like that. I think seeing Arizona again, feel pretty good about that start, even though it comes on the road. Getting the Cubs at home next week for Syndergaard, looking a little further ahead, I kind of like that matchup. Bottom half of that Cubs lineup is brutal. Cody Bellinger's hitting cleanup for them right now. That have been cool like three years ago, but he's not that guy anymore. No. So I look at that matchup as one that I, I really, for for a Dodger starter especially, I'm looking forward to that. So at least these next couple turns, he's Syndergaard's probably in for me. If I'm loaded with pitching I can use in those spots, I'm looking at my lineup, I'm like, I'm good this week, I'm good next week. Okay, I'll take the chance on Jamison. I think you're right. I mean, I think when you look at Arizona, I don't even know how Zach Davies was brought back. I know you want depth, but they gave him enough money where I think they're going to give him at least a month, and he pitched well in his first start. So the longer he pitches well, the longer they're going to keep going down that road. We saw Brandon Fott get rocked in his first start at Reno this season. Reno's going to Reno, but you can't give up, was it three homers in that no, start? No, four. four. You can't give yeah. up four homers, I think. Uh, three. Yeah, three. Of, I don't know if he even got pulled. J.J. Blade was taking it. But yeah, you can't give up that many homers. And that's why, like... When people saw Bumgarner going, I immediately was like, this is Dre Jamison. Dre's going to get the shot in replacement. They haven't announced anything, but if Bumgarner misses a start, it'll be Dre that they throw into that spot. And he's just a fascinating big strikeout guy. But I guess like you're alluding to, this is a battle between short in front of me season take versus long season take. And it's interesting because I hear Nick Pollock talk about that, our buddy over at Pitcherless kind of really get hyper-focused on the beginning of the season and that maybe. I don't know, taking place some of his his decision-making on the first couple starts versus what, I don't know, I think you got to be attuned to, especially at this point, similar to how like, you know, gambling books haven't quite caught up to what they need to margin some of the like K props and some of the prop market. The same thing, we have to act quickly before things adjust to what the early free agents are going to look like. And it's like, if a guy like, and Dre Jameson may get lit up in his next start and it doesn't matter. But these guys that are getting these early opportunities, you have to jump now and you're going to have to make some big decisions, whether it was in fab and you're jumping in on closers or you're trying to find replacements. You've got to make some big, deep decisions right now. And it's just like what drives you. And for you, it sounds like it is what is kind of in front of me. And I'll, I'll deal with I'll deal with later, later, maybe is the approach it sounds like that you're taking. Yeah. And I think. That comes from a few years of pretty harsh lessons, especially playing in the NFBC main event. I'm not playing in it this year. I played the big auction last year instead. The first few years I played NFBC, I thought, I can stash players for the future. I can have a bunch of guys that are going to get called up later. I can have a couple guys who are hurt. My bench could be mostly guys who are going to be 
stars when they're healthy, stars when they're up, you lose. You don't accumulate enough stats. You fall behind. It's a volume game. No matter how much we, we want it to be only skills, volume matters. Playing time matters. Roles right now matter more. I know the the old adage from Ron Chandler, draft skills, not roles. That's true. You should draft skills, not roles. But when you make in-season decisions, roles actually do make a huge difference. That's why we talk so much about two-start pitchers in weekly leagues. The value yeah. of two-start pitchers is a lot higher than many people realize. You need to get volume at each and every opportunity. So, Do you think Dre Jamison versus Noah Syndergaard is roles versus uh, skills? Yeah, it is right now because Syndergaard can go 5-plus and Jamison can't until that switch happens. And then yeah. once the switch happens, it, it's the kind of trade that I, I feel like you have to make that move now, but you have to have the roster set up correctly to where you can just use a guy who's in the bullpen, potentially for a few more turns. We'll see. I, I think you might be right. I think Jamison would be on schedule so they could just use him in that spot. That's what I think. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. Okay, let me turn it to one last one then because I know I get like this, but it's just, I think it's also relevant. It's top of mind, but I know it's dumb Diamondbacks. Uh, Brad Keller or Noah Syndergaard. You know, you see, you're talking about Mm. big changes, kind of exciting seeing there, but you want to see a couple more starts. Stuff plus versus Noah Syndergaard. (laughs) I just think Noah Syndergaard's ceiling is, um, it's very, it's similar to Alice in Wonderland in the beginning scene where they're opening that little (laughs) door and trying to squeeze in. Like you have to get smaller to fit through there. I just don't believe in the ceiling of Syndergaard. So Keller or Syndergaard? Very fair toss up. And I think team context makes the difference for me there. Whereas I think Syndergaard, if he, if his arsenal is not good enough to get through the lineup a third time, his team trusts him I, I should say, I trust his team. I trust the Dodgers to do right and use their bullpen and get him out of those games. With yeah. Keller, I think we've seen a pretty long pattern of the Royals just leaving their foot on the gas, just saying, you're out there, stay out there, stay out there, go six, go, go six, go, get go six. Yeah. And then that the third time through the order, if, if those new secondaries aren't working, if teams start to figure that out, that's when he's going to get crushed. And then, of course, you know, run support and the quality of the team around him. There's a difference there. Very, very close in terms of present skills. I think that's a great toss-up. It, it, it's a better, better bullpen, by the way, with the Royals. I just want to point. Like, a roll this looked phenomenal. He did uh, look good. They've got, they got Barlow. I think they actually have a little bit more going for them in the bullpen. Uh, do you think this is being... Do you think Last thing on Syndergaard. Do you think, like, I'm making too much about, like, not being interested in him? Like, I can't quite tell. Like, I know the team context is playing a huge role, as it should, but do you think the stuff is better than maybe, like, I'm... My disinterest? Like, I don't like velo down ticks outside of this new adjusted cutter um, or slider, or whatever the hell you want to call it. Like, there's just down ticks across the board. Do you think it's being made too much and it's way too early? Or are you kind of with, like, this? there's maybe some warning signs on Syndergaard? Even though, by the way, he had a good start against a very poor, crappy Diamondbacks offense. I think it's just more of a an arsenal depth plus location sort of profile than the, I'm going to come out and just blow you away and be overpowering. I think you just have yeah. to recalibrate your expectations for him. I think sometimes we see the name on the page and we expect a ceiling that was equal to what it used to be. And maybe people did this with Madison Bumgarner for a little while after he left San Francisco. Oh, he's Bumgarner. He's going to come back. Sometimes they don't come back. Sometimes they've just aged enough where the stuff doesn't play the same way. But I think there is some room. If you told me last year's ratios are still possible for Syndergaard, I wouldn't push back on that. I think that's actually a pretty reasonable expectation. Last year's ratios with a better K rate, very playable in a decent number of leagues. That actually ends up being more playable in 12s 
um, than people would would assume too. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm definitely more in on Syndergaard than you are, even though I have lowered the ceiling considerably from where it was. Part of that's organizational trust. Part of that's command. Part of that is just the depth of the arsenal. Yeah, I, I just also look at the depth of the the team, and but they're willing to go um, six. And I think if they played piggybacks, that would be fascinating. I mean, could you imagine Noah Syndergaard to Bobby Miller or Bobby Miller to? I, I just don't know why you'd want to start off a young guy like that, but um, and be the lead and let Syndergaard go. But if you get two tractions through with Syndergaard and then go to a guy like Bobby Miller or Gavin Stone, you got really one phenomenal. Um, you got one phenomenal starter out of that. If if Syndergaard is effective the first one or two times through. Here's a question for you that's not on the rundown, so this is totally fair. Dodgers starting pitchers, who are your top four in innings pitched this year when the season ends? I assume everyone's got Urias first. Yeah, so you got Urias first. You got Urias, then you got your choices of May, Kershaw, Syndergaard, and Michael Grove. You can add well, you know, Pepio Gonsolin. once he's back, Gonsolin. Anybody who's hurt can be a part of this too still. There's plenty of time for that top four, but I... After Urias, where do where do the bulk of the innings come from? Who comes in second, third, and fourth? And how many innings do they really get from each of those guys? Like, is there is there a world where Clayton Kershaw goes one fifty or one sixty again? I think there's a world, but I'm gonna say Dustin May is two, mm. and then Kershaw's three, four is fascinating. I lean that that's gonna be Gonsolin because I feel like when Gonsolin because Gonsolin's getting back close i think he just had a rehab uh maybe through a bullpen session i feel like he's getting close i don't have trust in Syndergaard long term i don't think the rookies are going to be around there enough pepio's already having injury problems and i don't think he's assured uh you know what here's a side thing maybe the third highest or fourth highest inning pitcher is not on this team yet and maybe we're going to get that guy in the next month or two. The Dodgers have the ammunition to pull it off. But I'm going to go with Gonsolin. Maybe that's kind of the cheap, boring answer that's not fun. I know someone would like to hear Gavin Stone or Bobby Miller or something like that. I think there's just a big clump of play. To be honest with you, maybe after that top three, it's just a big clump of players between Stone and Grove and Pepio and Bobby Miller and Gonsolin and all and, and all those players just trying to fight for innings. And I don't know if there's a clear cut. Maybe the fourth isn't even close to uh, one through three. What do you think? I think that order is about the same as what I've got. I think I would probably go Kershaw over May, even though we know we, we almost have a, a baked in two to four week absence for Kershaw at some point just for back maintenance. I think part of what makes that so tricky is the Dodgers depth and knowing that they can give someone a breather if they want to. They have that luxury right now. They do anyway. Bobby Miller is hurt right now. He's got a shoulder injury. It's just soreness. So we'll see if it turns into something serious. You know, you mentioned Pepio. He's got the obliques. They're already throwing Michael Grove out there. I wonder, I wonder if you're right about this, where they're going to actually go out and trade for another established starter just to help stabilize things a little bit further. You can also see Bobby Miller ending up in the bullpen for this year and then going back to starting in the future because that bullpen, as great as they are at finding relievers on the scrap heap and developing guys, one more electric arm back there seems like it would be a nice addition for them. Well, also, you know, you look at their minor league system, I mean, they could trade one of Papio. They they could trade a Pepe. I don't think they ever trade Stone, but they could trade a Grove or, or um, or Bobby Miller or something like that in a trade. But also positionally, they're pretty flush at catcher. You know, you've got Will Smith at the top. Dalton rushing, I think, is one of the biggest upcoming prospects, and that leaves Diego Cartaya. I actually watched Diego Cartaya have one of the worst performances I've ever seen in uh, minor league spring training. 
just getting lit up by Peyton Battenfield with the Guardians, just strikeout after strikeout. But he is a big physical presence. They've still got top players that they can go and move if they wanted to make a big trade. If there's a seller, and that's like a bigger question, who's selling pitching right now? Who's selling solid pitching that a Dodger team would want to go buy in on? If there is one and you can find one, the Dodgers have roughly the ammunition to get. I don't want to say anybody because I don't think they can get anybody, but they could really have, you know, they could be one of the top teams to compete across the board for any pitching. And, you know, with the this early struggles on offense, you know, Max Muncy's really struggling and they're still trying to find their footing and their placement with guys like James Outman and Trace Thompson. Maybe the best way is to not go acquire more offense, which they're replacing with young guys. Get more pitching. Just get more and more pitching as much as you can. And their bullpen looks kind of dicey at the end, too. Yeah, I think one of the trickier things, too, about the new expanded playoff format is it takes a few potential sellers away. Teams that would maybe consider moving a controllable starting pitcher can look at their playoff odds and say, no, nah, we're going the other way. We're, we're actually adding yeah. this roster. We're not we're not moving. And the good news for the Dodgers is if there's a tax, if there's a, an added premium to going out and getting pitching in season, they can pay it. Like If anyone could pay a, a talent tax in a trade, it's them. Like one that jumped out to me was um, maybe like the Reds, you know, if somehow they could pry, the Dodgers could pry Graham Ashcraft uh, mm. uh, away from that team. They've done trades before. Imagine him, imagine Ashcraft with the Dodgers and what that would look like. And that would be one of the, it would feel similar to, um, I mean, any of those young pitchers that get the hell out of the bad destinations. Like I was thinking of like Jose Quintana when he left the Pirates and went over to the Cardinals. Like that was fun. Like that would be a plus move if you can get out of it. But that's one of what three teams that you can really call out of it right now. Like the Reds aren't competing. But to your point with uh, the expanded wild card, everybody's kind of viable. Diamondbacks are trying to be viable. Rockies, you know, they could Kyle Freeland, Herman Marquez, those could be guys. But those guys, they probably feel after what they did this weekend, they're viable. So it's going to be really tough for teams to make those trades, which leads to the weirdness of what the Dodgers are dealing with and why there might be kind of a turnstile of different arms to figure it out, which lastly might lead to what your take is, is maybe Syndergaard, they have to lean on more and he's going to get more of a, he's going to have, you know, more leeway than I think he normally should just because based off of the options that are sitting out there. Yeah, I mean, what if he's more of a glue guy for them? What if Syndergaard is this good in the regular season and then shorter stints in the playoff sort of guy? Because I think if you look at like Jose Urquidy and how little he pitched for the Astros in the postseason last year, pretty good regular season starter, right? If Syndergaard's like that now, but then you also have the added benefit of saying, ooh, guess what? You're going two innings out of the pen when we need you in the playoffs. Okay, that works because they've got higher ceiling guys that they're going to have more confidence in. By the end of the season, Gavin Stone takes over a spot and you feel better about Gavin Stone in October than you do about this version of Syndergaard. I could see you know, something like that happening. I uh, did see a, a pretty interesting tweet from Jeff Passan. First four days of the baseball season by the numbers. Time of game, 2022, three hours, nine minutes. 2023, two hours and 38 minutes. That's a 31 minute improvement. That is incredible, right? So we love that. Offensive line so far this season, 245, 323, 392 last season, 230, 308, 374. You're basically up 15 points in average in OBP, 18 points in slugging. That seems good. We love that. We love that. Stolen bases last season, 29 of 43 at this point for a 67.4% success rate. This year, 70 of 84, 83.3% success rate. That is incredible. 
and of course, pitch clock violations, which without those, I don't think the typical viewer would even notice that things are changed. Like we know, we know things are different because we've been reading and talking about it for months now. 40 pitch clock violations, less than one per game. If those didn't happen, you just think you're at a game that happened to be playing fast. I, I, I really, this is all for the better. The only thing that will lead me to change my tune about this is if we end up with a rash of pitching injuries. If the increase in fatigue units from working faster blows up a whole bunch of shoulders and elbows, I will say, fine, we're going back to the three hours. But if there's no negative consequence for the health of players keeping the pace of play like this, this is a massive win. I love it. More, please. I'm kind of across the board. You know what I'd be really interested in is someone did the math here. I would love to know what the five or the 40 pitch clock violations added in time. Like what was the total added? You know, because people are like, oh, I wonder how much time. Like, what do you think? Like if you 40, let's call it even. ten. I mean, what, like five minutes total, maybe five minutes total of extra time across MLB. The thing that is very interesting to me uh, in two parts is clearly baseball and we all probably knew this, but they found their way to get more offense. Everybody, you know, everyone loves long ball. Everyone loves offense. And the moves that they made with the stolen bases and the pitch clock, not only as a pace thing, but you're seeing the offense uptick. I think pitchers having to go quicker, you're seeing, you've seen 15 point uptick in batting average. And I think there's a clear offensive upside that's happening in there. And you're also seeing with a, with the inability to throw over, you're seeing the success rate of stolen bases go up. I don't even focus so much on the total number because I think that's pretty fluid right now. And we, we don't have enough to be like, holy crap, stolen bases are going to actually double. The success rate, though, is what stands out to me. And it really changes the profile across the board. But what baseball did is they found a way to speed the game up and make there be more offense. And there's really no downside. I mean, for us pitcher people that like great pitching matchups and stuff like that. Okay. That's might be a little bit stinky, but at the end of the day, we want the game to thrive. And um, yeah, I don't get any of the backlash also against the, the games being less. It's great. It's fantastic. Under three hours, whether it's me sitting watching at home or me being on a backfield, this is the best thing ever. I, I think it's great across the board and you said it perfect. As long as we don't see a bigger rash of pitching injuries, I don't really see the downside of anything that's going on right now. I mean, think about watching your favorite team, let's say six times a week, 30 minutes per game saved. That's three hours of your time back to watch other games. That's a to, game. To go that's for a, a walk, game. to go for a jog, cook your dinner, spend time with your family, call your friends, whatever it is. Like 30 minutes a day adds up, especially uh, over a full season. Imagine so. if you got 30 minutes more of sleep a day, DVR, <laughs> with the amount of sleep you're getting with the newborn. Imagine 30 minutes of more sleep. Don't even... Don't even tempt me with that. That's that's incredible. <laughs> it almost sounded like you're going into an ad read for some kind of like pillow company or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, company. yeah, exactly. Imagine 30 more minutes of sleep. What's your sleep number? <laughs> <laughs> it's closer to zero right now. Yeah, but I know, right? <laughs> it's hopefully going to get better in the next few weeks. Uh, a couple things before we go. Just some weekend fab takeaways. If you were looking back, you would have noticed that Pierce Johnson, the interim, we'll say, Rockies closer, was among the most popular pickups. I don't understand how this happens. I realize Daniel Bard is on the IL right now. He's dealing with some anxiety, getting some treatment for that. All the best to him as he goes through that. Not really a timetable on when someone comes back from something like that. Totally understandable. But Pierce Johnson pitching in Colorado, like a really popular pickup like that. That seems like fab that could be very poorly spent 
maybe it's because he could hold the job as a solo closer and not be part of a committee, but the max bid across the main event was 279 Even in the 12-team <laughs> the leagues, the smaller ones, the $350 entry fees, is up in the three-digit range as well there. That's 28%. So. 28% of fabs spent on a uh, part-time closer right now is crazy. The closer market in general was crazy. I don't see them on this list. So in, in case I'm just not seeing it, I for, forgive me. But like um, AJ Puck went for an absurd amount of money. And I think a main event, I saw uh, somebody post it was like $400, which have been 40% of fab got spent on AJ Puck closing out a game for the Marlins. And Danny Jimenez also got a look with the A's over Trevor May. And I think he was into the double digit. Not that I'm for spending 40 or 30% on a guy like AJ Puck. But I would rather have spent my money on Jimenez or Puck for the potential long term than I would have Pierce Johnson. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I think both of those other two have a better chance of being the guy all season. And even if you believe that, that is a massive commitment when you're talking about 20% of your budget, potentially 25, 30% in some cases to get those yeah, players or more. You could be chasing, uh, you could be chasing players later and end up having some, you know, a longer period of time where you're near min bids by bidding this aggressively. So there's totally. definitely a long term cost to that. You mentioned Dre Jameson earlier, uh, maxed out at 66 in the main event. I think there are people already speculating on him taking a spot in that rotation. It makes sense given the usage out of the bullpen right now. Uh, we saw I a lot of interest. You know, how much do you spend? More. I spent a little bit more. I, in TGFBI. Uh, I spent 76 on okay. him, uh, just a tiny bit more aggressive. Uh, I don't think there are any other bids though. So I was Ooh. a solo guy, in it. but I'm happy, eh, you know, 7%, whatever. I'm happy to hear though, that the main event was almost about in line with the price that I had. And it was kind of uncontested, but we also had crazy saves. Like I put a bid on one of the closers. I think it was Pierce. But I wasn't remotely close. I think he went for like 17%, like $170. So comparatively, uh, some people kind of joining the market with me on maybe Dre being a starter. So that that that, that makes me kind of feel good when no one else bid with me. <laughs> yeah, I saw big bids on uh, Michael Grove. Reasonable big bids, though. Like a max of 117. The median was closer to 54 in the main 117? event. 17? Yeah, 117 for the max. Two-star pitcher for this week. I think if you're in the the four to five percent range for a good two-start pitcher who can stick around that seems appropriate i think going a little higher than that max bid there might be too much but if he sticks in the rotation longer than expected that could definitely pay off tyler mcgill all the hype we had early last season seems to be coming back around bids were mostly triple digits on him 255 was the max on mcgill uh, they're so banged up in that rotation and they're so old that you could see a scenario in which someone's always hurt and there's consistently an opportunity for mcgill if he continues to pitch well, don't you think 255 real, real quick? Don't you think 255 is a little too much though? Because I'm with you on that one uh, on McGill. Like I'm more open to it because I think it's a great point you bring up of like the age and how kind of beat up they are. But 255 seems like a little too much to speculate to that level. I feel like 150. What was the average? Like 150. One, yeah, 140. Yep, for the median. Yep. I don't know. We yeah, had 150 to 175. That would have been my range. That seems a bit high. Yeah, and even that might have been more aggressive than I would have been unless I was really hurting for some pitching because of some early season injuries. Uh, Jiwon Bay offering steals in the opening series, also commanding some large bids at the high end. Median was 33. There was a wide range on Jiwon Bay because there's still some uncertainty about his playing time. Maybe a possible bargain in another young outfielder. Joey Weimer gets the call for the Brewers because of the Luis Urias injury, Welsh. So 
Urias is out, so Brian Anderson's going to move from the outfield to third base, opens up right field. Weimer has started three straight games since being called up. He's going to be he's in the lineup again on Monday. So getting starts against same-handed pitching, I just think it's complicated because if he struggles, they have Sal Freelich waiting in the wings yeah. in the minors, and they could also shuffle things around in that roster again. Um, they could play Mike Brasso more against same-handed pitching at third, put Anderson back in the outfield. So I think Weimer has to perform in order to keep that role. But the way they're using him, even though it's the bottom of the order, it looks like they're giving him a pretty fair shake in the early part of this Urias absence. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Joey Weimer fan on the planet. Uh, I, Sal Freelich is totally my guy. I'm actually, I'm not surprised because I, w- I went to Brewers camp only twice and Weimer was, de- I mean, also I think Freelich might have already been out for the, the Italian team. But these were in like the early practice days. And I saw Weimer with the major leaguers like running way more than I did with Freelich. Yeah, because Freelich was there on that day. And uh, But I'm not the biggest on him. And I think he's a little bit vol- more volatile on his swing. He's going to put up big power numbers if he makes contact. But if he struggles, I think they would pull that trigger on South Freelich pretty quick. So any aggressive bids, this isn't one of the prospects I'm personally making aggressive bids on. But what was the median? 50? That's not horrible. No way I'm spending over 10%. Yeah, I was more in that 3% range just because I think there's so many ways it could be a short-term bumpy ride, even if you do like the skills. I mean, you're a little lower on him. I'm curious to see how he fits into their plans given the number of outfielders that they have at their yeah. disposal, plus Jackson Churio eventually going to be a big part. Double A, starting a double A too. this season too. So as soon as you get to double A, you are technically, anything can happen once you hit double A. Just pointing out to everybody, not I still think it's pretty far-fetched. And I think he's an opening day potential next season. But just don't discount any player that's at double A or higher that uh, anything could happen. They are as effusive in their praise of him as everybody who talked about him throughout last season was. They seem to be all in on the Jackson Churio hype within the organization. So more prospect talk coming up on Tuesday. Project Prospect makes its triumphant return. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels on our way out the door. I should let everyone know you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Hard to pass that up. It's the best deal that we put out there all year. You can find Welsh on Twitter at is it the Welsh. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Tuesday. <laughs>